If you have your scriptures with you, please turn them to the 15th chapter. Let me just go over with you a few technicalities about the scriptural text so that um, you know um, some of the innuendos in the original language. And then we will take off with the Spirit. Now, when all the tax gatherers and sinners were coming near to him to listen to him, coming near to him is in the Greek a present imperfect tense, which means that this was not a one-time event. This was becoming a usual event. And because Jesus would usually welcome them, That is what made the Pharisees and the scribes begin to grumble. And by the way, those of you who are new to the faith, Pharisees and the scribes, of course, are the religious um, hierarchy of the day. They are the people who know everything about their religions. The Pharisees tried to keep every bit of the law, and and not all of them were bad. You know, there are, uh, much of that was sincerely motivated. Um, But... They were the, um, the socially accepted religious leaders of the day. Now, it says, <clears throat> this man receives sinners and eats with them. We have talked before about the special intimacy of eating together. That is not just a, well, let's do a power lunch together in order to get business done. <clears throat> in the oh by the way i just saw this we forgot to announce the uh, missions uh did not get finished last week we didn't give them enough time and so the 14 people who went to mexico will try again this week at six o'clock tonight to relay to you what the lord did with them and what they what they what he did with their mission team when they went down to mexico so please be invited tonight six o'clock in the sanctuary to hear the rest of that I would have felt badly if I'd have forgotten that. Um, The Greek for companion is two words meaning with bread, com meaning with, and panis meaning bread. So a companion is someone with whom you eat bread. And that was what disturbed them. Not that he was teaching these people because they could... They could always be on the outskirts. Even in a Pharisee's home, a sinner was welcome to come and be on the outskirts, but not to eat with them. You know, when a church has the rare occasion of disfellowshipping someone, one of the commandments is that you do not eat with them. See, because there's that special intimacy implied in eating. And so the Pharisees were frightened. Not that Jesus was teaching them but that he was loving them. And then Jesus does what is really cute and comical. He takes two occupations or two categories of people that are too low for the Pharisees usually to consider. One is shepherds. Pharisees had no regard for shepherds because they could not, in their occupation, keep the law. Two is women. 
they had a reduced status in the society. And so he gives them hypothetical situations, putting them as if they were shepherds, as if they were women. He says, what man among you, if he has a hundred sheep, see, in other words, you're, you all pretend, you're supposed to pretend, lower yourself now to pretend to be a shepherd. If he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one who is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. Now listen to this. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which is lost. I tell you, in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Now, let me ask you this question. What kind of repentance can this be? Repentance is a change of mind. It is turning around in a different direction. What kind of repenting can a sheep do? Let me leave you to consider that while I read the rest of this. Or what woman among you? He's talking to the scribes and Pharisees now. Which of you women, if she has lost ten, uh, if she has ten silver coins, and the silver coins were um, drachmas, the Greek word is drachma, um, it was about the same as a denarius, about a day's wage. And we're talking about a very poor woman here. Uh, we're talking about a woman who is single. She is either widowed or she has been divorced or she is never married and. Um, There is no real way for her to earn income. And she has gleaned a head 10 days fortune, which which takes a lot of scrimping and saving. Um, We know this because she's managing the household goods and it doesn't mention any man. Um, Does not light a lamp. The the lamp is because uh, in Palestine, the houses, if they had any windows at all, were very small windows. They did that for security purposes because people could, so people could not crawl through um, and steal what they had. Um, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, I have found the coin which I had lost. In the same way, I tell you, there is more joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. If you think it's tough for a sheep to repent, how tough is it is to, for a coin to repent? What kind of repentance does he talk about here? Well, here he is not talking about someone who is rebelling with their lives and takes a look at their life. That's, we're going to talk about this next week. Takes a look at their life and says, this is a mess, I want to change my mind. Here he is talking about someone who is ignorant who is acting without much thought, sheep do that, and certainly coins do, but who allows themselves to be found by God. It is a repentance that is a recognition or a a giving oneself to a God who came after. See? See? giving oneself to one who loved me enough to search for me. It's not my my doing here. It is God's doing. So there are really at least two kinds of repentance in Scripture. 
One for the wanderers who never meant to leave God. They just found themselves apart. But recognize that God, even in their ignorance, has grasped them. And they're glad. And the other one we're going to talk about next week. Basically, these two scriptures are about the character of God. And they are about the worth of an individual. And being about the character of God, they are also somewhat about the character that we can have if we have the spirit of the shepherd, if we have the spirit of God. Now, let me tell you a couple of things that are so powerful to me in this scripture. One is the fact that love loses control. Consider this. You cannot love someone as much as they need to be loved and still stay in control. The shepherd had to leave the flock. The shepherd had to leave his management position in order to love the individual like he needed to be loved. When you are free or when you find yourself in a position where you can actually lose control, you don't have to manage everything. Everything doesn't have to be in order. You may find yourself for the first time in your life really loving someone. Forgetting all that you would normally do and going to them and saying to them, by your presence, you're more important to me right now than everything else is really a statement of love, isn't it? Some of us husbands get all confused why just earning a living and providing a good home for our wives is not demonstration enough of our love. Are we not good managers? Do we not bring in the bacon? I mean, if it's a single income house? Do I not repair the house? Do I not paint the house? Is not everything in order? You really think that's what she's looking for? What about you women? Especially if it's two career family. Do I not bring home the bacon and fry it up in a pan and never let you forget you're a man? One of the corny commercials. Not performing sometimes is every bit as important as performing. Because we are not of equal worth with everything else. In God's strange mathematics, in His odd 
scheme of things, one person is absolutely irreplaceable and as important as anything else. When I started out in ministry and I was doing my doctorate, I was a chaplain. One, one year I was a chaplain at a mental hospital, but there was another time I was a chaplain on a terminal cancer ward. Now imagine a 22-year-old kid who <clears throat> didn't really have a great deal of training being put, turned out onto a ward full of terminal cancer patients. You, th- you talk about scared. I was scared stiff. And one of the things that you have to learn when you're scared <clears throat> that I thought you had to learn when you're scared was how to control your emotions so that you don't strike fear into other people. I mean, if you go into a cancer room, somebody who is dying, and you break down and throw yourself on the bed and say, oh, don't die, you know, then they got to take care of you. And so I very much just wanted to control my feelings. And I very much also, another way we control ourselves is to, is to, is to have some sort of answer. That's a device of control. We feel like we've got to have an answer. And even as much as my supervisor said, there is no answer for this, there was still something inside of me that says, there is if you read scripture hard enough. You've got an answer if you just come up with something that sounds good religiously. I mean, it'll get them through it. And I was not helpless. I mean, I went and I prayed for healing and I, I loved them as best they could. I could. But I still felt tremendously inadequate. And then one day, I went into a little boy's room. You know, I can stand it with older people. But I just can't stand it with kids. And I went into this little boy's room and his mother was there. And we'd grown pretty close. I'm going to see if I can get through this. And I was trying to come up with some way of comforting her. And he was very close to death. And I said, stupid. You know, you're a young lady. You'll be able to have more children. And she just looked at me like, you know better than that. And I followed up what she would have said had I not. But nobody can replace this one, can they? You could have a million children and never replace this child. You could have five billion children the way God does and never replace this child. And I said, I'm sorry. She broke down and I broke down. Lost it. Lost control. Loved her better that day than I ever had. But you see how important you are. It's not like God has other children that can take your place. It's not that if you get lost by your wondering that he does not miss you. He does. No one can replace you.
no one. Because love is love that loses control. And he loves you much better than he controls you. By the way, Christians, be real careful about how you use the phrase God is in control. Real careful. That can communicate something to people that God may not intend to have communicated. God is sovereign. But that is not the same as being in control of everything. He loves you enough not to control you. He loves you enough to let you go. And he loves you enough to chase you your whole life long. Second, it makes sense when you think that from God's perspective, from the shepherd's perspective, justice means more than making a profit. It means more than getting ahead. Because a shepherd that has raised a flock of a hundred sheep knows their names. He's, he's been with them since they've been lambs. And he has in his mind, you know, that little lamb is as much deserving of the attention and the food that I can lead them to as any of these 99, and therefore I will not rest until justice has been done. It's not just a thing of my personal love. It's not just a thing of my personal intimacy. It's a matter of wanting everyone to have the same chance. Everyone. I think that in this society, we have lost or are in the process of losing our original sense of justice. Our original sympathy for the poor and the powerless and the innocent. Now I want you to remember this is not about someone who intentionally wandered off. This is about a little dumb sheep that nibbled itself lost. In Scripture, the word is translated desert, but it's not really a desert, but neither is it a pasture. It's a little arid place, or a big arid place, rather, that has little tufts of grass. And the way that a sheep gets lost is that he keeps his head down and just goes from one tuft to the other one. And he literally nibbles himself lost, never looks up, doesn't know what's happening. Do you know we have people like that in our society? And our stock answer for them, now listen to this, is that's their problem. Now I agree to the point that we want everyone to fulfill their greatest capabilities. That's the greatness of this kind of country. It's a greatness. I belong to a political party that has as its goal the least amount of government and the maximum amount of entrepreneurship. But I'm ashamed of the political party that I belong to 
in its insensitivity to people who cannot help themselves, who do not have the capability of staying within the fold. I'm ashamed of the way we do not take the resources of government and care for those people. Do you realize what made this country great was the heart of compassion that we had? The words on the inside of the Statue of Liberty read like this, if I can remember it, and I'm not sure I can. It says, keep... O ancient lands, your, I've got it written down up here. I knew I'd blow this one. Keep, ah, keep ancient lands, your storied pomp, said she. In other words, keep the Pharisees and the scribes. You keep those people you're proud of. You keep the best of the lot. Keep ancient lands. Your storied pomp, said she. Send the tired. Give me the tired, the poor, the huddled masses longing to breathe free. See, the greatness once was the fact that we had compassion on the lowest. We had the heart of a shepherd. It was the greatness of God. And now we have the heart of a legislator. Now we have the heart of a litigant. Now the people that get the resources or whoever have, has the biggest political action committees or whoever has the most lobbyists or whoever can muster the most political force, and I'll guarantee you it's not poor people. I guarantee you it's not the kids of our land. It's not them. The issue of whether or not we are a Christian nation, can I say this to you? does not care a whit whether or not there's a cross on top of a water tower in St. Cloud. If it's not in your heart for people who cannot defend themselves, it doesn't matter if there's crosses on every water tower in this land. It is not an issue of who wins. It's an issue of justice. It's an issue of who needs and who out of the love of God has their needs answered. Whether or not they know their need. Whether or not they're smart enough to organize for their need. If people only have the capability of nibbling themselves lost and they wind up in a situation where they would if they could, but they don't know how, so they can't. That's our job. Now, again, we're not talking rebellion here. We're not talking about people who won't work, who have this thing of, I'm going to get by. We're not talking about that. But you know what? I wonder why we worry about those people so much. 
Quite honestly, I think it's so we won't have to worry about the others. I think every time some sympathy starts to rise in our hearts, we bring up this smoke screen that says, well, gee, just lazy, you know. If they'd worked like I did, they could have what I have. Did the shepherd ever say, look, I've got the flock here. I can't help but he nibbled himself lost. It's going to happen. I can replace him. You know, sheep have sheep. I'll have enough for me. Never said that. He, because of ignorance, showed mercy. If you will turn to 1 Timothy just for a second, let me, let me show you something. Verse 5. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart. How could he show love? Why was he motivated to show love? Why was that his goal? We'll look down in verse 13 and 14. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. See, it had been shown to him. Do we forget what's been shown to us? Have we forgotten that we once were helpless and somebody helped us? Somebody cared about us? Do we think literally... That from the time we were small, we were able to make it on our own? Yeah. We've been loved. We've been helped. And if we've forgotten it, that's our mistake. And we need to repent. And thirdly, it makes sense that one is as important as an entire nation when... Recovery is as important as maintenance. You see, the lady with the lost coin could have said, well, I still got nine. I can put them in a bank and earn interest. Or I can, I'm, God only gives me stewardship over what I now have. That's not true. Would you turn to Revelation 2.4? Here's somebody who's doing real good with what he now has, and it's not enough for God. <clears throat> well, read uh, verse 2 with me down through 4. I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance, and that you cannot endure evil men, and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. Now that's pretty neat, isn't it? They're being good stewards with what they have. Read the next verse. But I have this against you. 
that you have left your first love. We are responsible to have the kind of character of God that recovers what has been lost. Not counts it out, not says, well, it's a law of averages, but actually recovers, and not only material things, but intimate things, relationships as well, as much as they are discoverable and comebackable. Is that a word? Of course it's not. Let me tell you another story about me. I'm sorry, but this brings up just a lot of memories. Let me tell you why I came down here. One of the reasons I came down here is because I started out in ministry with all of the right, all the right reasons. You know, I wanted to love God with my whole heart, and I was going after Him great guns. And there were people in my life that I really, really wanted to help. There was a couple in my church when I was growing up, an old, retired couple that were custodians of the church, and that was their only job. And back in that day, you didn't have a great deal of retirement. And these people were poor. I mean, I went to First Methodist Church. You had a lot of rich people, not these people. These people would come in, and you could just tell they were struggling meal to meal, you know. And when I went to seminary, Every month, I got a check for $5 from these people. They couldn't anymore afford that $5 than the man in the moon. But they wanted to help build a minister. And every time I got that, boy, I came real close to dropping out in seminary a lot of times because I just wasn't very holy and I never thought I'd get there. But every time I got that $5, I said, no, somebody believes in me. And someday I'm going to get out and I'm going to preach messages that will give those people hope. And let those people know how much they're worth to God. Someday I'm going to do it. Fifteen years later, I found myself more an executive director than a minister. I was the head of a large organization, the Methodist Church. Big staff, senior pastor, big budget. And every day I was was deciding things like, are we going to build a multi-million dollar sanctuary? Are we going to move here? Are we going to have a family retreat center here? Are we going to do this and do that? And there was this creeping sense of emptiness in me. There was a piece of me that was lost. Literally lost. And because of the other nine-tenths that was going all right, and people were getting helped, and people were getting saved, and and the church was going good, but gosh, there was something in there that was not right. And six months before I came down here, I preached a sermon in which I confessed to the congregation that I had felt the voice of God come in my heart and say, you know, you're doing great, you've persevered, you haven't grown weary, but I have this against you. You've lost your first love. It's been a long time since you've chased after me like you used to. It's been a long time since you've thought about people that couldn't afford to send $5 anywhere. 
Well, Northland was my answer to that. And when I came down here, I recovered that lost part. I've done little since I've been down here but chase God and have him chase me. I've done little other than just study his word. I have absolutely no interest in the organizational, institutional life of this church. (laughs) You know that, don't you? (laughs) It's not that I don't care about you. I do care about you. But I will never again in my life become an executive director. I will never again lose that piece of me that was intimate with God. If you come to me and you say, Hunter, we want you to spend eight hours a day on your face, tenderizing your spirit so that the Holy Spirit can talk through you on Sunday, I'll say, great, thank you, I'm going to do that. If you come and say, I want you to spend eight hours a day in the Word so that you can communicate to us what the Scripture says. I'll say, great, I'll do that. If you say to me, there's a hurting family over here, and I know you haven't noticed them, they really need you, just give me the directions on the way out the door. But if you ever, I'm serving notice on you today, if you ever come to me and say, we want you to head up this multi-million dollar building project, I'm going to say, no. Because I am never again going to become an executive director. I tell you this because I have people now asking me weekly, what's going to happen? Look at this. This is the middle of the summer. This is the early service. Look at this. What's going to happen? Are we going to become a megachurch? What are the plans? Are we going to spin off? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I can't even pay enough attention to the dumb building to get a leak fixed in the office that's been there for three years. That's how much I care. If the building fell down tomorrow, fell down and nobody was hurt, I don't care. I don't. If it falls down and it doesn't rain next Sunday morning, we'll have services on the roof. As a matter of fact, if it does rain, we'll have services on the roof. I don't care. Because I'm never again going to lose that piece of me. It was lost. Now, I believe God will raise up people who care. I, I believe God will raise up people who have those kinds of questions and are sharp enough to figure those kinds of things out and I say go to it but it's not me it's not me when there has been something lost in your life be like God be like the shepherd search for it until you find it Because we long to be complete. We were made like that. Search for it until you find it. And if God can come to you this Sunday and say, you know, you're doing real well, but I have this against you. You don't love me like you used to. 
Would you pray with me? Lord God, you care for us more than we can imagine. You love us more than we will ever, ever know. And some of us have nibbled too far away. And we have a sense that we're not surrounded by you anymore, but we don't know where we are. We're just trying to get from one day to the next nibbling. Would you come and get us, please? And throw us up on your shoulders and take us back. And for those of us who have lost what you have given us, help us to search for it. So that we can be stewards, not just of things, but of relationships. Especially of our relationship with you. We thank you for Jesus who loves us and who cares for us. And Jesus, go with us from here. And when we start to nibble and when we lower our eyes and when we take them off you, hoist us up and bring us back. We pray in your name. Amen.